0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 1. We continue this morning to make our way through the first chapter of the book of Genesis, a foundational chapter upon which the whole Bible rests, a very important chapter indeed. In the first several verses, verses 1 through 8, we have the account of what took place on the first and second day of creation. And we're going to be looking at what took place on the third day this morning. And our reading will begin with verse nine. Then God said, "Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters He called seas." And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning for the third day. Before we seek to open up these words, let's now pray together for God's help. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us this straightforward account of what you did when you brought everything into existence in the beginning of, the, of your creative week. And we bless you, Lord, for this third day that we are about to study. We pray that you would fill our hearts with wonder and awe And also with gratitude, fill our hearts, O Lord, with a sense of delight in you and in what you have done by this creative work. We pray, Lord, that you would touch each and every one of our hearts according to our need, by the power and the grace of the Spirit of God, using his word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout the creation account, we mustn't take our eyes off the central character of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The central character is God. And from beginning to end of this narrative, the account of each stage begins with, and God said. It begins, the very first words of the scripture says, in the beginning God created And then afterwards, at each one, each stage along the way, it says, And God said, you and I are reading the account of an omnipotent creator. He speaks, and it is done. And in addition to omnipotence, this creation history, it features several other characteristics of God and his work. After the initial declaration in verse 1 of the creation of the heavens and the earth from nothing, The rest of the chapter tells us what God did to form, to shape the earth, and then to fill it. And what God did to shape the earth on the first two days of creation features two other characteristics. In addition to his omnipotence, God speaks, it's done. These two characteristics are light and order. The creation of light reveals a God who is light in whom there is no darkness at all. The separation of the light from the darkness, and the separation of the waters above from the waters below, these reveal a God of order, a God who loves order that we ought to imitate. And the account of what God did then on the third day, which we're going to take up now this morning, it begins with the separation of land from water, and it continues this theme of order. But because the third day also includes the creation of plants, a new theme emerges on the third day concerning God. It portrays God as a good God. We've seen him as an omnipotent God. We've seen him as a holy God who is light. We've seen him as an orderly God who delights in order. But also he is a good God. And as we read Genesis 1, we discover that the whole chapter leads up to the climax of the creation of the first man and the first woman in the image of God. And viewed from this perspective, that this is where the whole chapter is leading us, we see that everything that God does in this creation account is with reference to this first couple he's about to create. He's doing this all for them. In his Discourses on Genesis, the 18th century particular Baptist pastor-theologian Andrew Fuller, he exclaims as he studies this chapter, "How see how careful our Heavenly Father was to build us a habitation before he gave us a being. Nor is this the only instance of the kind. Our Redeemer acted on the same principle in going to prepare a place for us. See the parallel he draws. God's preparing a place for Adam and Eve. Jesus prepares a place in heaven for you and for me. The habitation that God built for us is a very well-stocked habitation with everything that we need. In The creation of the rich variety of plants that cover the earth. God creates a well-stocked pantry, we might say. And in this, we see that our God is a good, loving, caring God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked, What is man is there among you who, who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a serpent? And if you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We read those words in Matthew chapter 7. And this is the great encouragement that we have to pray based upon those words. Our God is a good father, and good fathers delight to give good things to their children. Our first parents, let's remember, were tempted in the garden when Satan tempted them to question this goodness. He put the thought in their minds, well, God's holding out on you. You'll have a little more fun, you see, if you do what I ask you to do. It'll be better for you, and God's hiding this from you. He's not really a good God, you see. That was the temptation, and this temptation is put to the lie not only by the lavish provisions of the garden, but also through his rich provisions throughout the whole earth. And this begins especially on the third day of creation. It speaks about plants, it speaks about what grows on plants, it speaks about land, and it speaks about the plants that grow upon the land, because plants need soil. And so on the third day, before God creates these plants, he prepares a place where they might grow. Now, as we open up this passage, we notice in the first place, the first section of this study, it pertains to the creation of land, verses 9 and 10. And during the first two days of creation, God had brought increasingly form and order to the creation. And the earth that's now been illumined and now is warmed by the light, it's now robed in blue, It's dappled with clouds floating over sparkling seas. Day and night visit the earth. It's overhung by a pure atmosphere and a glorious sky. That's what it is now. But there were no valleys, no plains. There was no dry land on which crops might grow. The earth was completely covered with water. It was a shoreless ocean with nowhere on which man's feet might walk. It was not yet a habitable environment. In Luther's lectures on the book of Genesis, which amazingly fill up eight volumes, he likens God's creative work to building a habitation in which God might dwell. And speaking of God, Luther says, after he has prepared the roof of this building, namely the heaven, and has added light, he now also gets ready a piece of ground and brings forth the earth, fit for the habitation and activity of mankind. This is what we see in verses 9 and 10, the preparation by way of giving land, and then later on we're going to see the preparation by giving plants. Now in this first part of our sermon, we notice that there are four elements to the creation of land. We see, again, that there is a divine separation, a divine effectuation, a divine nomination, and a divine approbation. First of all, in verse 9, there is a divine separation. Let's read that verse again. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Now, in its original state, the earth was without form and void, as verse 2 tells us. And on the first two days, God brought about order of the chaos And he does this by two acts of separation, the separation of light from darkness and the separation of the waters above from the waters below. And now in verse 9, we read of a third separation. A shoreless ocean is so transformed that dry land emerges. And God's omnipotent word is issued again. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear so submerged portions of the thick crust of the earth were lifted up the land and the mountains were created and the waters were drained off and the deep abyss was was excavated the waters that were swallowed up then in by these submerged canyons a huge activity takes place at this moment In poetic style, the Lord questioned Job from the whirlwind. And he refers to this mighty act of creation. Who shut in the sea and doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it, when I said, this far you may come, but no further. Here your proud waves must stop. Gardner Spring writes the earth was now it was a terraculous globe. In other words, it was land and water. That's what it became. Its surface presenting all the variety of land and water, continent and ocean, sea and island, bay and promontory, hill and plain, mountain and valley. Beauty and majesty, while his subterranean apartments unfolded, a scene of wonders everywhere, exhibiting the depths of divine wisdom. Now the root of the Hebrew word yabasa, it means to be dry or to be withered. That's the root that's behind that Hebrew word used in this passage. And it's the word that's translated land here. It refers... To dry ground. And oftentimes the dry ground is in, cont- in contrast to the sea. In Exodus, remember the story of God's people going through the Red Sea? We're told that the Israelites, they traveled across Yabasa. It's the exact same word there. They traveled across dry land. God not only took the waters away from each side, but He made it so the water wasn't even muddy underneath them, it was dry land, miraculously, that God prepared for His people. To go through. It's the same Hebrew word. And because verse 9 here speaks of the waters being gathered together into one place, many Bible scholars they believe that originally there was only one great landmass. And only and then the, rest of, the was, rest of it was an ocean. And this took place, and it was all changed by the Genesis flood. And they point out that two of each kind of air-breathing animals walked into Noah's Ark. But it's possible that there was more than one continent. And it's also possible that God populated all the continents with the same variety at that point of animals. And so we can't prove just based upon the fact that God says here uh, that the animals walked under the ark, that there was only one continent. And assuming verse 9 implies that in addition to the water being gathered together into one place, that the land was also one place, Creation scientist Antonio Snyder Pellegrini, he proposed in 1858 that this single continent, one continent only, catastrophically broke up during the Genesis flood, and it was then separated into our present-day continents. But after Charles Darwin published his Origin of the Species just a few years later, Alfred Wegener, he proposed a slower form of separation of the continents. And based on this theory, he tried to show that our present continents, they originally fit together as one piece, like a, it is like a jigsaw puzzle. And this theory, which is still popular today, is called continental drift. And if you hear that phrase, continental drift, probably got its back maybe about 30, 40, 50 years ago when you were in school. I'm not gonna make you tell me how long it was ago. But geologists today, they explain this theory of continental drift by the theory of plate tectonics. And the whole idea is that the Earth's crust of the outside, it's made of a mosaic of these rigid plates. And these plates move uh, in proportion to one another. And it's the shifting of these plates and the movement that creates the mountains, that creates the different uh, parts of the Earth. And eventually, after millions and millions of years, cause the continents to separate from one another. There is this slow incremental drift that takes place. That's the theory. But all of this it depends on the theory of uniformitarianism, and the theory of uniformitarianism is that what we observe taking place today can be reliably extrapolated back to what took place millions of years ago. And two thousand years ago, Peter he he referred to this very theory. Uniformitarianism existed right back in his day. He wrote that the scoffers were ridiculing the promise of Christ's coming, and they were saying since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So everything's the same. Nothing's ever changed. It's uniform. They believed in uniformitarianism. But Peter, he called out this idea. He went on to point out by that in saying this, these people willfully forget that the word of God speaks about the issue, and the the Bible in his word says that the earth once perished by a flood, and that even now it is preserved by the same divine word until the fire of the day of judgment. And when we come to those chapters of the book of Genesis that recount the worldwide deluge, we're going to see that the problems of the, we're going to see the problems of the slow and gradual view, this whole uniformitarian idea that over millions of years all this, these little plates they separated and continents began to develop and we're going to see that I believe that the flood explains what is taking place in geology far better than this whole theory of tectonic plates moving apart over millions of years. It was sudden, it was catastrophic. The geology emphasis shows that this wasn't something that happened little by little. Huge upheavals took place thousands of years ago in the flood. I believe that there's nothing that explains, therefore, the geological structures of the earth better than the Genesis flood. And we're going to get to that uh, further on in our studies of the book of Genesis. But having said this, I must point out that the language of Genesis 1-9 it does not force us to the conclusion that there was one land mass before the flood. In verse 9, there are two separate commands. Let the water under the heavens be gathered together in one place, command one. And then command number two, let the dry land appear. And these two commands are independent of one another. He says the water is in one place, but it doesn't say let the land be gathered together in one place. So the fact that the waters of the ocean are all connected, they're in a sense all unified, they're all connected one to another, the waters of the ocean, this does not exclude the possibility that the land masses may have been divided and separate even right from the very beginning. But as we consider this whole first aspect of the third day, the creation of land, having noted the divine proclamation, I want you to notice the second place that we have here in verse 9, divine effectuation. What God commanded, it was effectuated. In other words, he brought it about to pass. That's what we mean by effectuation. And after God's twofold command, at the end of verse 9, we simply read these words, and it was so. As I've pondered those words, I have to say that there's some of my favorite words in the Bible. Again and again in this chapter, God says this, and it was so. God says this, and it was so. And throughout the whole Bible, that's what he does. He says something, and whatever he says, he makes sure that it comes to pass. It was so. The work of separating the land from the ocean, it was a stupendous task. Now think of it. For days in the news, if you've been watching the news at all, there have been excavators that have been trying to dig out the end of this ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal. They've been trying to take off some some cargo from this container ship. And they've been unsuccessful. To take just a little bit of mud out of the way, you see, and move this ship. It takes days and weeks, perhaps. Think of it. But our God, he doesn't just have to move a little ship like that. He has to lift up the mountains into their places. He digs out the great canyons of the deep. He speaks the word, and all that needs to be said about the effectuation of his command is simply put this way, and it was so. What he said was done. It was so. Nothing is said about the way he did it, how he moved the mountains, how he moved the oceans. We're simply told that it was so. And it is not our place, therefore, to figure out how all of this might take place. And only then to believe. It's our place to wonder and adore. Jeremiah 5.22, Yahweh says, Do you not fear me? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And then notice with me that there is a third element recorded in verses nine to three, or nine, nine through uh, 10, with respect to the uh, creation of the land, and it's the, the third element is divine nomination. We read this in verse 10, and God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters He called seas." Now this is the last time in the creation account that God names anything. He continues to create, but he ceases to give names to what he just created. And that responsibility is going to be given to man once a man arrives on the scene. In chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, we read of Adam naming the animals and the birds. In chapter 2, and verse 23, and also 320, he calls his wife woman. He names her because she came out of man. And in in chapter 3, verse 20, he calls her Eve because she's the mother of every person who lives. Later on in Genesis, we read of various individuals giving names to various persons or things. But here's the last time in which God explicitly gives a name to what he has just created. And here, let me just simply point out that the Hebrew word that's translated earth in verse 10 is the same word that occurs in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same word. But the word has a different meaning here in verse 10. In verse 1, it refers to the whole planet. But here, it refers to the land mass. And so I think we can better translate it, verse 10, in God called the dry ground land. It refers not to the whole planet, but rather to that part of the planet that's not covered with water. And then the fourth element recorded in this first part of the third day is that of divine approbation. We read at the end of verse 10, and God saw that it was good. The third separation, the separation between ocean and land, it brought about what we might call the completion of the infrastructure of God's creation. And at this point, God stops to admire what he's just done. And he calls it good. The world now has a form, a tripart form. It has the land, it has heaven, it has sea. It's separated, it's distinct in these parts. And God now is satisfied with what he sees. It's just the way he wanted it at that point. And in seven places in this chapter, we read that God sees what he just did. And he sees that it's good. And this is the second out of those seven occurrences. In the poetic account of creation in Psalm one oh four, in verses five through nine, the psalmist celebrates this part of God's work. And we read, and here I would just like to turn there. Maybe you can turn, you can just listen to me read from Psalm 104, beginning with verse five. you read in that chapter you who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever you covered it with the deep as with a garment the waters stood above the mountains at your rebuke they fled at the voice of your thunder they hasted away they went up over the mountains they went down to the valleys to the place which you founded for them you have set a boundary that they may not pass over that they may not return to cover the earth. The majesty of the mountains, the vastness of the sea, this should fill our hearts, you see, with wonder. It should fill our lips with praise. The psalmist is praising God, and he uses, therefore, a poetic form. It's not a historical form like in Genesis 1. And he stirs us up to praise this good God that did this, And from the water that evaporates from the ocean, we are blessed with rain. From its depths, we are fed with fish of all kinds. And when I view what has so amazingly been captured by the camera on various episodes of of the Planet Earth video series, there's some things in there that I don't agree with, little things about evolution and climate change and so forth. But I I found the tremendous edification of watching those things. it, It makes me worship. These people talking about, they're blind about what they're witnessing. But you see what, God's, what's, what what's there in the oceans. You see what's there in the mountains and on the land and the distinct parts of the wor- the earth. It fills your heart with wonder. It makes me worship when I see those things. When our family visited Glacier National Park, the Beartooth Pass, and the Grand Tetons several years ago, my heart was filled with wonder. When we see God's created work, how great he is. And what a good God he is, we have to say. And when I drive through the Midwest, I don't see quite the majesty of the great mountains and the like, but I see miles upon miles of corn waving in the breeze. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing because it grows from rich soil that's not found in many parts of the world. You don't have to go to the store to buy black dirt in that part of the country. It's just everywhere in the ground. That's what they grow things. It grows rich, you see. And God has provided, you see, this land upon which such crops might grow. And this should fill our hearts with gratitude. What a great God. What a good God we have. What wonders we have on all sides that surround us. What lavish provision has he made for you and for me. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of God. We've looked at the creation of land, and now I want you to notice with me what we read in verses 11 through 13 about the creation of the plants, coming back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, these verses, they move from the creation of the bare earth to the vegetation and ornamentation of that earth. And unlike the first and the second days, which feature one creative act by which God formed the earth... The third day has two creative acts, the issue of creating land and the issue of vegetation. And from the creative actions which feature separation, we now move beyond them to the covering of the earth. We've seen three things now about, that separate, that bring about order. The separation of light and darkness, the separation of the waters above the waters uh, and waters below, And also what we've just seen, the separation of the land from the water. And now we've looked into what's going to cover the land. And who who later on is going to cover Adam and Eve in the garden with garments of skin, he first covers his earth with lush vegetation. And this part of God's creative work, this should fill our hearts with gratitude, should fill our hearts with praise. Now, not a root could germinate in the, in the Earth's soil, not a tree could blossom. not a blade of grass could spring forth from the earth without the creative and providential care of God. And again, Luther approaches this text by envisioning God's work as the, the building of a home for his creatures. He writes, "God has built the first parts of the house. It has a most elegant roof, the heaven." Though this is not yet fully adorned. Its foundation is the earth, its walls on every side are the seas. Now he makes provision for our sustenance, so that the earth brings forth herbs and trees of all kinds. And perhaps we could change this figure of speech just slightly. God now builds and fills a pantry for you and for me in the house that he is preparing. As soon as he created the land on which we live, immediately he caused this land to become fruitful and to bring forth grass for the cattle and crops for the service of man. And when we consider God's lavish provision, this should lead each one of us to exclaim what is man, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you visit him. This is what God did for you. This is what God did for me. He gave us this world full of this lush vegetation. Now in these verses we have first of all a divine proclamation. And this is found in verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. Now here we should note that the creation of plant life, it's not what theologians call creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. We have that back at the very beginning in verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It was nothing He used to create them with, He created them out of nothing. But that's not what we have here. He is now working with materials He already created. The earth is the second cause, we might say, of this creative work. He uses this material. And what takes place is still creation. Because you see, this land which God has made so far, it's just dirt. That's, it's not even organic dirt. Nothing has ever grown in it. There's never been any life to put nutrients back into the land. And what takes place here, you see, even if the earth lay for a million years, nothing would have grown of itself on the land. It could have never spontaneously generated life. I wish we had time to get into this whole thing about spontaneous generation. But this is just blasted to smithereens by the accountants here. It's something that God had to do. By itself, nothing can spontaneously generate life. It is God that causes the earth to sprout forth with vegetation. Now, Up to this point, everything God that has created, it's inorganic. The light, the expanse, the gathering of the waters, and the dry land. And God's creative fiat now calls into existence something that's organic. Prior to this word, there was nothing organic in the soil. Nothing that could produce plants of itself, especially. E.J. Young, I think, correctly writes what he says. The language of verse 11 is closely guarded. For it precludes the idea that life can originate apart from God. Or that the earth of itself can produce life the earth upon which man is to live is one that is hospitable to him, providing him with seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees, but it is only at the creative command of God that makes this possible. As we read verse 11, immediately we're forced to wrestle with an interpretive question. The question is this, is this verse referring to three classes of plants or two? What do we have here? In particular, the issue revolves around the word that's translated grass in the New King James. We read in verse 11, then God said, let the earth earth bring forth grass. And that same word in the New American and the English Standard, standard Version is translated vegetation. And the question is, does this word refer to a separate class of plants, in other words, does God first create grass, and then secondly, these two different kinds of seed-bearing and fruit-bearing plants? He's talking about three different classes of, of vegetation. The New King James gives us the literal meaning of the word. It's literally translated grass. But I'm inclined to understand this word in this place as a generic description for plant life. And so I think in this place, the New American Standard and the English Standard Version are correct in translating it vegetation. Verse 11 speaks of God's creation of vegetation, or plant life. And then it tells us of two kinds of that plant life that God made. The first thing I want to comment on here, it pertains to these two classes of plants. As verse 11 puts it, God created the herb that yields seed, And the fruit tree that yields fruit. Now, what these plants have in common is that they're both food producing. It doesn't give us all the plants in the whole world, it gives us these two samples, and they're both food producing plants. Remember, what do we have to account here? It's all with a view of God preparing for man, He's giving a food source to mankind. And the former type of plant, it bears its seeds externally. And the second type of plant that's described here, it bears its seeds internally. The seeds are inside the fruit. And stated otherwise, the one is seed-bearing, the other is fruit-bearing. And it's the second class, the fruit-bearing plant, that bears its seed inside the fruit. And verse 12 goes on to state this very explicitly. It describes the fruit tree, as you hear I quote, this tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself. If you want to give some examples, the, the, the first kind of plants that have seeds on the outside, not inside the fruit, they would be like corn, or wheat, or oats, barley. That would be an example of those kind of food-creating food plants. And the examples of the second class, The class of the fruit tree whose seed is in itself, it would include apples, trees, peach trees. It would include, I think tomatoes would be included in this as well because the seeds were inside a tomato. And we could give many other such examples. And many vegetables, they contain their seeds within their fruits as well as fruits that grow off of trees. Well, these two classes of plants, they represent agricultural plant life that's emphasized here in this account. So are these two kinds, especially, that are mentioned. And then the second notable thing in this divine proclamation is the phrase that's repeated three times in verses 11 and 12. It's the phrase, according to its kind. These are very important words. Let's notice what we read here in verses 11 and 12 again. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, Herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. You see, three times that phrase is repeated, and it's repeated again seven times with reference to the sea creatures, the birds, and the animals in the rest of the chapter. Now, the Hebrew word min, which is translated kind, I think, in most of our versions, is a very important word. And We're going to talk about that word for a little bit. The use of this word, it clearly contradicts the general theory of evolution. Creation scientists, they distinguish between what they call the special theory of evolution and the general theory of evolution. And what do they mean when they speak about the special theory of evolution? Well, they recognize that various mutations have been observed by scientists, such as the color of moths. That's a famous example. They, More and more, the moths that could be camouflaged as they would hang on the edge of a tree, those are the ones that tended to survive. And uh, So eventually there was uh, this slight mutation. And some of these mutations result in the identification of different species. And this is what creation scientists call the special theory of evolution. But on the other hand, there is a general theory of evolution. And according to the general theory of evolution, these mutations you see, they have happened for millions of years, and all these forms of life that we now see all around the globe, and the all plant life and animal life, they all go back to one little cell. And that cell was the first one in which there was spontaneous generation of life. And then they say, well, you know, with all these different changes over millions of years, all these different types of creatures came forth. And creation scientists, of course, deny this theory as being true. Now, the existence of these two theories, it raises this question. Which theory of these two is compatible with the use of the word men, the Hebrew word men, in this place? First of all, let me say that this word men, translated kind, it's not the same thing as species. That's not necessarily the translation that it should be given. And the idea that the Hebrew word men means species, this arose from Jerome's Vulgate translation, translation into Latin. And he translated the Hebrew word men with the Latin word species and genus. And when scientists speak of a biological species, they're usually referring to the population of organisms that can interbreed and they can produce fertile offspring, but they can't interbreed with another species. That's usually the way they refer to different species. But creationists point out that the biblical word men, translated kind, it refers to a larger category than what is identified today as species. And they argue that the word translated kind, it refers to distinct kinds of creatures that were created with a vast amount of genetic information in them. The DNA was vast and huge. And included in the genetic information of each kind was the possibility of of development over, over time, you see, of some variations between those, among those that had that genetic uh, commonality. And it's interesting, when you go to the ark encounter, you go there, it's that ark, that huge ark that's been erected by the ancestors and Genesis people. When they have this section of the ark in which they, they label the different types of animals, and they have baby dinosaurs and all those kinds of animals on there, they always use this word kind. This is the such and such kind. This other animal here is the this such and such kind. They will say to such and such species. They use this biblical phrase, or this biblical word, I should say, of kind. And this is what we're referring to here. This is what the Bible refers to. The possibility of hybridization, it confirms that two species can be put together and they came originally from the same kind. And they can now, therefore, because they have the same general uh, genetic uh, information in them, they can produce a fertile offspring. In agriculture, it's common for scientists to try to produce a a better plant that maybe is a resistant disease or grows bigger or whatever. It has certain desirable traits, and they hybridize certain plants. And therefore, this provides us evidence that even between these two kinds, there was a common source, a common genetic source. And that common genetic source is identified here in Genesis chapter 1 as the different kinds that God created. So we say that the way that the word kind is used in Genesis 1, it completely rules out the general theory of evolution. That theory that supposes that every life form on earth has evolved from one common life form. The use of this word, it rules out the idea that mankind evolved from apes. And let me point out that according to this chapter, each kind is capable of reproducing itself. According to God's creative design, plants and trees reproduce themselves. They bear seed, each according to its sign. Kind, this passage says. The first plants you see were the production of a supernatural act of God's word. But after those first plants were created, their reproduction... It made it possible for these plants to reproduce themselves. And this is allowable because of God's providence. Even though he's not creating something uh, fresh, he is nevertheless by his providence because of the way he made those plants, causing them to be able to reproduce themselves. And implanted in each organism as a vast array of genetic information. And this information makes it possible for them to reproduce and, of course, this natural capacity, it continues to be sustained by God's providence. But all of this, including God's original creation, and he, including his providence, this is absolutely marvelous. This issue of, of self-reproduction, you see, is amazing. Now, notice with me, as in the other creative works that are described in this chapter, the divine proclamation then is followed, secondly, by a divine effectuation. The divine command in verse 11 immediately is followed by the words at the end of the verse, the same words that we read before, and it was so. And as verse 12 plainly declares, what God proclaimed, what God decreed, it came to pass immediately. There's not the slightest indication in this passage that this was a process that required thousands, even millions of years. And those that believe that What God said was not fulfilled until subsequent ages, you see. They're reading that into the text. It simply is not there. The text could not be plainer. The omnipotent word of the almighty God, it went forth, and immediately it was done. And it was so. He said it, and it was done. Everything in this account, it creates the unmistakable impression that God's creative work was instantaneous. There's not the slightest implication anywhere here that what took place took place over long, drawn-out millions of years. Now, in passing, let me also mention that the result of this work was the production of mature plants. And they have the appearance of age. They're, they're not just he God didn't start out with seeds. He starts out with mature plants that he brings to, to completion right off the bat. And later on, we're going to see he creates a, a mature man. mature woman. They don't come into the world like babies. And then after the divine proclamation and the divine effectuation, these two things are followed thirdly by divine approbation. And we won't spend time on that, but at the end of verse 12 we read, And God saw that it was good, and the day closes then with the usual formula, so the evening and the morning were the third day. Or as the New American puts it, and there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Now what I would like to do in the minutes that remain is concentrate on two out of the three applications that were listed in the bulletin. First of all, I believe that God has given us this account that should stir us up to a wonder and awe. What we have here is creative wonder. What God did on this day, it ought to fill our hearts with wonder, with awe. We have the history of this grand day in this chapter. And we have the response of the godly in Psalms. Especially in that Psalm that I read a little while ago. And also in Psalm 33, after referring to the way that heavens were made by the word of God. In verse 7 of that Psalm, the psalmist speaks of what God did on that day. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. And then comes the appropriate response. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Try to imagine you were present on that day. Maybe God gave you a little... A little uh, kind of plane or something that could fly over it and see it all, and you could see, take in great, great parts of what was taking place below. And suppose you're able to witness not only the great convulsions that took place when the continents were lifted up and the waters rushed with great torrents such as you've never seen before, you see that. But then you, I want you to try to remember what it must have been like for God to speak. And suddenly, all around you, millions upon millions of acres of trees, they sprout up from the ground. They stretch their branches to heaven. They unfurl their leaves with a brilliant green. And they speak instantaneously of the wondrous creative power of God. Imagine the sight of corn sprouting forth, instantly heavy, full of corn. And then you look at a different direction and you see grapevines rapidly climbing up, laden with great huge clusters of grapes. And all around the earth, it's bursting with innumerable varieties of trees, fruit trees, vegetables, stalks of grain, flowers of every color and shape. and Amazing flowers watch some of those creation videos those natural videos the one there's, there's plants that are just absolutely amazing and your wonder only increases as you then consider not just the whole scene but you begin to think about each plant you begin to think about each flower every plant every leaf every flower it bears the signature it bears the stamp of deity And how each plant sings forth, I think, as it were, the praises of its maker. How fragrant is his creative work with praise. Now surely this third day, it's a day of wonders. It's a day to be remembered forever. Up to this point, lifeless, dull, and cold, Now the earth is cheered. It's warmed with the warm burst of heaven. It's clothed with fresh leaves. It's blushing with roses. A laughing meadow stretches out before you in a moment. And in the distance, great redwoods. that reach up hundreds of feet up to the heavens. Would your heart be filled with wonder to see that? What a sight that must have been. And does not all of creation that you see doesn't it sing, as it were, the praises of God? How can we be silent? How can we be without worship? As we sing these creation songs, these are songs that should be sung with great vigor. They should be sung with a heart that's bursting, you see, with adoration, with praise and wonder. The more you study what God has made, the more astonished you become. These plants are not just amazing things to look upon as they are so varied and amazing in their features, but they are self-replicating solar-powered food factories. That's what they are. They are the basis of the whole food chain. And because they don't require their own food, but rather they make it from water, and they make it from carbon dioxide energized by sunlight, which produces Uh, which causes photosynthesis to take place. And in this process, they also produce oxygen for the rest of us to believe, uh, so that we can breathe. And this photosynthesis, by means of these plants, is one of the most important chemical reactions in all the earth. It's 97% energy efficient. That's an amazing energy efficiency. And in that energy from the protons absorbed by the photosynthetic system, it's all converted, 97% of it, into chemical energy. And it's a process that even the most brilliant scientists cannot reproduce. This is what God did. And it's still an amazing thing that we see in every plant that is around us and that we see every day of our lives. Well, I don't have time to go into all the details about this. We need to have Andy McIntosh come again and give us a lecture with, on plants, maybe. But it's it's amazing. But let me just say that they are not only energy efficient food factories, but they are also efficient energy concentrators. They make the solar panels that are on my roof look very like really inefficient crude things by way of producing energy and capturing the energy of the sun. But these are efficient capturers of the energy and producers of the energy. Now we're not told when. Microorganisms and things like bacteria were made, but probably they were created along with the plants. But even think about the smallest of, of, of plant-like creatures. Even the lowliest one-cell organism is capable of doing what the most advanced inventions of man cannot do. These little one-cell creatures, they can make themselves. They can reproduce themselves. Even the most advanced computer can't just reproduce itself. It's impossible. A photocopier can't make a photocopier. They can make a copy of a piece of paper, but they can't make another photocopier. And yet computers and photocopiers, they don't have near the complexity of one little teeny cell. The DNA that's in that little cell is far more complicated than those machines that are so impressive to you and me. And dear ones, if even in the simplest works of God we behold the wonder of this work, surely this is the wonder working of God that made these things. Surely this is something that should cause us to praise and adore this one who made such things. And then, by way of a second application, I want to point out that what God did on the third day, it also manifests his abundant goodness recently you and i have experienced a lot in our decaying country that is not good it brings us to great grief as we see it taking place and the reasons for this disappointing experience this is going to be spelled out more in detail when we get to genesis chapter 3 this beautiful earth that god made it got ruined and the hearts of people got ruined and all kinds of things perverted what God had made originally as being good. But even in this sin cursed earth, even in this earth, the remnants of the beauty is still there. The remnants of the original goodness is still there. And even though we can only see the original goodness through the lens of Scripture and through sanctified imagination, like we just did a moment ago, trying to imagine what it would have been like to see it all. We can look upon what God has made, even in its present sin-cursed state. And we can still see God with new eyes and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can see that what God made reveals a good heart, a God who is good to his creatures. When the angels fell, dear people, they descended not to a world that's prepared for them. That's not where they are now. The angels that fell from heaven. They descended to a bleak, dark place. A world in which no dew descends. In which no cheering rays penetrate. A world prepared for the devil and his angels. But what's surpassing love and kindness and goodness was manifested to you and me. Even though we sinned. That God prepared by his sovereign mercy and grace a place that is rich and lush with provisions for all of God's creatures, where day and night, summer and winter, seed time and harvest never cease. And even among those blessings that we often overlook, there's abundant evidence of this goodness. Frank Mann, he writes this, in enlightening pastime is to make a list of favorite things that impact the senses. It sharpens our appreciation of these golden moments in time. For example, one man's list of, one person's list that he actually wrote of ten favorite sounds. My list wouldn't be exactly like this, probably yours wouldn't either, but this is this person's list a distant train whistle, a mother talking to her new baby, the scrunch of leaves on a bright autumn day, seagulls crying. A hound baying in the woods at night. The absolute silence of a mountain lake at sunset. The crackling fire on a, day, on a bitter day. A stadium crowd singing the national anthem. The screech of an airplane's tires as they touch down. And his wife's voice that morning. So yeah, it was a guy, I guess, that gave this list. This was his list of sounds that this person delighted to hear. God gave us five senses, and then he filled this whole world with pleasures that gratify each sense, and he's given us taste. He's given us other senses that appreciate the goodness of the way in which he filled this earth with vegetation. What a good God we have. As the warm spring sunshine, as the gentle April showers begin to cause our lawns once again to grow green, let's rejoice in God. As the crocuses and other of the first flowers, they first spring forth, bringing the first blooms of spring, no matter what kind of troubles you're going through, this is reason for thinking of the goodness of God as you bring home strawberries grown in the state of New York and made available now to farmer's market, so you don't have to have all the chemicals. You get those strawberries grown from right around here. This is God's goodness. He's provided for us. It's a fresh token of a good God. And when you go a little bit later into your own garden and you pull off some ripe tomatoes, let this remind you that you should thank your good Heavenly Father for what he has provided. He is good, abundantly good, lavishly good. Luther, in his lectures on this portion of Genesis chapter 1, he says, let us consider how God provided such an attractive dwelling place for the future human being before the human being was created. and Thus afterwards, when man is created, he finds a ready and equipped home into which he is brought by God and commanded to enjoy all the riches of so splendid a home. On the third day, God provides kitchen and provisions. And then he tells us what's happened on the days that follow. And all of this, he says, in all of it, generosity is intended to make man recognize the goodness of God. And then think about this. Not only did God prepare out of his great goodness for all of mankind, but for you and I who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is busy preparing a place for us, just like God did back then, preparing for all mankind. Jesus is preparing a place. I go before you to prepare a place for you, he says to his disciples. He says that to you and me. And the one preparation is a foretaste of the other preparation. And the final and glorious preparation will be seen when we get to the new heavens, and the new earth, which will never be polluted by sin, and never ruined, and which in the greatest and most, in the highest way will sing with the glory and the majesty of God. My dear unconverted friend, Satan wants to convince you that God's just kind of making you... The whole purpose of this book here that we preach from is to make people miserable. It's to make people say, don't have any fun. He's just keeping things from you keeping things that really would be fun, really be nice. That's Satan's lie, my friend. He tries to paint God out to be an ogre, a stingy God that's not kind and generous to his people. But the God that we have in the Bible is not that way. He's a good God. And the way you and I can know about this is that he sent into this world his only begotten son. And what did Jesus do? The book of Acts tells us that one of the sermons, he went about doing good. Just as God did good things at the original creation, the, the Lord Jesus went about doing good. And if you want goodness, if you want the blessing of forgiveness, if you want the blessings of communion with God, these good things and many others besides come to this Lord Jesus. He still does good things for those who come to God through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we bless you that you've given to us this wonderful account of what you did so long ago. Help us to appreciate it. And where we can't understand some of these details that we went over this morning, we still, O Lord, know enough by what we see that we can worship you, we can love you, we can adore you for what you have done. Help us to do just that. Keep us from murmuring and complaining. Keep us from acting like you're holding out on us. And we deserve better. Oh, Lord, we deserve worse. And yet, in spite of what we deserve, you've given us far more, oh, Lord, than, than, than we could ever ask or think. Especially for your children. You've prepared a place for us. And we thank you, God. We bless you for this great goodness. And we pray, oh, Lord, that some sinner in this room would come and enter into the pantry house, as it were, into the into the cl- into the pantry of of your provisions and partake of the goodness and the blessings that have been served up and are continually served up by the Lord Jesus Christ. May they find out your goodness through Him and in Him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.